Thank you, David, uh, for reading that passage. So we're starting a new series in Romans this year, which is going to track, uh, we're going to track with Romans through uh, the first half of this year, uh, through to September. Uh, and in your study groups, if you want to, you have the option of also uh, shadowing the series and studying it in your groups. So that's something you can talk about uh, in your groups when you get together. Uh, let me pray for us before we look further at this passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, wonderful, rich book of the New Testament, which is preserved for our benefit. Please, we pray, uh, speak to us now through it uh, for our blessing and for your glo- to your glory. Amen. Uh, in the fourth century AD, a young man was in crisis. Uh, he had a Christian mother, but he had turned his back on her faith. Uh, he had decided he was going to seek truth elsewhere. And he decided to live however he wanted. Uh, As a result, he led a wild life, uh, often going to drunken parties, and he even fathered a child outside of marriage. One day, whilst living in Milan in Italy, he heard the preaching of Bishop Ambrose, who was a, a towering figure in the church of his day. And this young man found himself unable to shake off what he heard. In his own words, and he he recounts, and I quote, the turmoil of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle within myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. Suddenly, I heard a child's voice from a nearby house chanting, pick up and read, pick up and read. I had a Bible with me, so I opened it, It opened at the book of Romans, and I read the first passage which my eyes fell on, and it said this, uh, not in drunken parties, nor in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts, which of course is Romans 13, chapter verse 13. He continues, I never, neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, it was as if a light of relief from all the anxiety flooded into my heart and all the shadows of doubt were dispelled. This young man's name was Augustine. And of course, he went on to be one of the great church leaders and theologians of his time and indeed in church history. He read part of this book we're now going to study for the next few months, and his life was transformed. The message which is contained in this book of Romans is powerful. And this book itself has been used powerfully by God throughout church history to change and transform people's lives through the gospel. That's my hope for us as a church. As we go on this journey together, that we would be transformed in our joy and that we would seek and be moved to live lives more to God's glory. A bit of background on the book of Romans. Of course, it was written by the Apostle Paul, uh, probably in AD 57, uh, whilst he was in Greece. Uh, As we're going to see, he's never actually met the Christians in Rome, but he wants to visit them. And so what he does is he writes a letter to them Uh, by which he introduces himself, and he also explains the gospel. And so he wants to prepare them for his visits. That's his reason for writing the letter to them. 
Now, when I write a letter to somebody, I simply put, uh, dear Bob, whoever it is I'm writing to, and I sign it off, uh, love James. But not for Paul. Uh, For Paul, it takes him seven verses to introduce himself and to present his credentials, as well as addressing those to whom he's writing. It's interesting, he doesn't just introduce himself. Uh, He also introduces his message. He declares to them the gospel. Look at Romans 1, verse 1. Uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, Let's just pick it apart. Uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Uh, You could literally translate the term servant as slave. A slave of Christ Jesus. Christ, of course, is a title, meaning king. Paul is a slave of King Jesus. What he's saying there is it's an authority structure. Paul is under the reign and is under the rule of King Jesus. He continues, he's called to be an apostle. Uh, Apostle means literally a sent one. Uh, He's a bit like uh, an imperial ambassador who's presenting his credentials which he's trying to do indeed all the way through to verse 6, and he is sent by King Jesus. He's a bit like a royal emissary. Uh, Did you notice that he's not applied for this job? He's not self-appointed. He has been called. And he's also been, and it says, set apart for the gospel of God. He's been set apart, if you like, for the task And his whole life is dedicated to this wonderful end of declaring the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Uh, It's interesting when you understand um, the word in Greek used for gospel is euangelio, which literally means good herald, good herald. Uh, In the ancient world, uh, when, say, an emperor won a battle, uh, he would spread the good news of his victory through the use of heralds. Uh, These runners would go throughout the land and they would declare publicly in every town the emperor's victory. They'd tell the good news to the people uh, and it would be a cause, of course, for great celebration. And so you see, the gospel is this declaration. It's this good news. It's the announcement of a great victory, the victory of King Jesus. And when you see more about Paul's life, you realize that the good news is so great that he's willing to separate himself from anything and everything to declare it. Uh, It may be wealth, it may be health, it may be acclaim, friends, even his safety. The Apostle Paul is prepared to separate himself from all of those comforts and rights so that others can hear the good news of Jesus. It's that important and it's that good. Did you notice also in this verse, it is described as the gospel of God. You see, Paul had a great mind. Uh, He was a great intellect. Uh, But what he presents is not his idea. Uh, What he writes does not originate with him. He has been given the message by God himself. And he is therefore seeking to just pass it on accurately and faithfully. 
we all know, of course, there are parts of the, the gospel uh, which you or I maybe feel uncomfortable about sometimes when talking with people who don't yet know Jesus. Is there not a temptation sometimes to maybe go a little softer on the bits which we're uncomfortable with, uh, to maybe just soft-pedal that? But you see, it's not our message to change. It's not our message to domesticate. Like Paul, we are called to faithfully and accurately pass it on. So, it's God's announcement. Uh, It doesn't originate with Paul. And in fact, what we see next in verse 2 is that it was promised throughout human history, uh, way prior to the coming of Jesus. Look at verse 2. So it's the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. But what is this good news? Verse 3 tells us the content of this great declaration which heralds proclaim. Look at verse 3. Uh, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What is the content of this declaration which the herald proclaims? It's all about God's son, the man, Jesus We're told here that he was fully human. It says, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David. Uh, You'll know, of course, that a thousand years before Jesus was born, God had made promises to the great King David. And the promise was that his family line would one day produce the ultimate, final, universal king. And the rule of this king would have no end. We sang about it in the previous song. And now, Paul is saying, Jesus is this human descendant of David to whom the promise was made. So he was fully human, but also, did you notice, Jesus is fully God. He is called here the Son of God, it says, doesn't it? And who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to, the son, to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Uh, You see, the status of Jesus as the Son of God was confirmed by his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven, to the right hand of the Father. And therefore, this declaration of victorious good news calls for a response because Jesus is arisen and he's reigning today. Look at verse 5. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. You see this good news. Uh, It's for all people. It's for people whether they're Jews or whether they're non-Jews, whether they're Gentiles. God has set Paul apart for this most special task. His job is to take this good news to the Gentiles to the non-Jews. And what is the response that is required? You notice, it is the obedience which comes from faith. What does that mean? You'll be familiar with those words, the famous words of Martin Luther who said, we are saved by faith alone, 
But faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but, but faith that saves, true faith, is never alone. What he was saying is, we cannot do anything to be saved. It is by faith alone. But what we do after we are saved should change. We should then lead a life of obedience under Christ's rule. So you see, real faith is faith in the divine King, to whom we then give our allegiance and our obedience. Um, my boys come up with lots of uh, good and tricky questions, and uh, one day recently Isaac asked me this one. How do you know if you are really a Christian? How do you know if you're really a Christian? What would you have said if he'd put that tricky one to you? Well, I try, I've explained to him that a Christian is somebody who says sorry to God and asks God to forgive their sins. But then I said to him, what do you think it means when we say sorry? So he said, well, it means that I'm asking for forgiveness for the wrong thing I've done. I said, yes, but what else does it mean, Isaac? And he thought for a minute, and he was struggling a bit, so I gave, gave him a bit of help. And I said, Isaac, when we say sorry, we're not just saying sorry for what we've done, but we're also committing to the future being different. To say truly sorry means I don't want to do this again either. So you see, if we're quite happy to continue disobeying King Jesus, then really it shows that we were never truly sorry in the first place. A real Christian is somebody who asks Jesus to forgive them, and it starts with that. But it doesn't end there. We ask Jesus, please forgive me, be my saviour. But then we say something else. Jesus, from now on, please be my Lord. Please be my king. Please be my boss. I want to live now obeying you. So you see, Jesus is both our saviour for forgiveness, but our Lord. We then live under his good rule. It is the obedience which comes from faith. So what is Paul's motivation uh, to spread this good news? Uh, it's interesting. He's not driven by guilt. and He's also not driven by duty. He's actually driven by a passion for Jesus' name to be, to be honored. Uh, do you notice in verse 5 it says, through him and for his name's sake. That's his passion. That's why he wants people to learn about Jesus. So, uh, let us reflect together for a moment about, if we're Christian people, how this applies to us. I want to ask myself this question, and maybe you can as well. If I'm trusting Jesus, do I have a heart to tell others about him? And if so, is that passion of my heart fueled by a passion for God's glory and the honor, for the glory and honor of Jesus? Is that what's driving me to tell people about him? Or is it guilt or is it duty? So let's continue. Uh, Paul is writing uh, to the Christians in Rome. Uh, these are people who have already responded with, as it says, obedience that comes from faith. Look at verse 6 through to 7. 
and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, uh, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, has anybody ever called you a saint? Uh, of course, sometimes uh, the term saint is used in a very limited sense. Uh, you know, the Roman Catholic Church elevates some people to the status of saints as if they are holier than the rest of us. But when the Bible uses the term saint, it is just talking about anybody who has put their faith in Jesus. That is what it means. Uh, literally, it means pure one. And of course, when we put our trust in Christ, we become pure in his sight. So let's continue uh, motoring through this beautiful passage of Scripture. Having introduced himself in the gospel, Paul goes on to share his heart for these Roman Christians and his intention to visit them. And we're looking now at verses 8 to 15. Uh, Paul is deeply thankful for their faith. Uh, Rome, of course, was the capital of the Roman Empire. And of course, in that day, Rome was the superpower. And so, therefore, Rome was the nerve center and the power base of the then known world. Uh, what happened in Rome didn't stay in Rome, unlike in Las Vegas. Uh, news spread quickly. Uh, such was the case for the faith of these believers in Rome. Look at verse 8. Uh, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. Uh, Paul himself has never been to this church, but he is praying for them and he wants to visit them. Look at verse 9 through to verse 10. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. He's got a heart for them to grow as Christians in their health and vitality. And he wants to use his abilities in preaching and pastoring so that they can be encouraged. Look at verse 11. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to make you strong. It's interesting to note that Christian encouragement is not a one-way street. Uh, it is actually mutual. And as Paul encourages them in their faith, he says that they also will encourage him in his faith. Verse 12, he continues. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Again, let's just pull in a lay-by and reflect on this for ourselves. If Paul sought that encouragement in the faith from other believers, how much more should we? In our conversations after the service, do you think that we take full advantage of the opportunity to encourage one another in our faith, in our spiritual walk? Are we talking with each other on that level? Uh, here's a challenge. Why don't we each resolve to encourage at least one person spiritually after each service, to have one conversation with somebody, to engage with them on that deeper level and say, how are you going? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? And as we do that, we will be mutually encouraged. 
So, uh, Paul wants to come to Rome to encourage them and to encourage himself. But he's also got a second reason for coming to Rome. Look at verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, uh, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. So you see, not only is he coming to encourage those inside the church, but also to reach out to those outside the church, to the Gentiles who haven't yet heard about Jesus. He wants to have a harvest of new believers, as verse 14 then makes clear. It says, verse 14, I am obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. He says, I'm obligated. Now, the word translated obligated could also be rendered uh, indebted. Uh, Paul has never met the Roman church, uh, far less the greater population of Rome. And it's a bit strange, isn't it, that he may say that he is indebted to them. Uh, in what sense is he obliged? In what sense is he indebted to the people in Rome? Uh, Tim Keller's got a great way of explaining it. He says this. Uh, you can un understand being indebted to somebody in two senses. Uh, firstly, if uh, maybe you lend me $100, I'm in debt to you until I pay it back. That's one form of indebtedness. But there's a second sense. Uh, someone else may have given me $100 to pass on to you, and I am indebted to you until I pass it on to you. And that is the sense in which Paul is talking here, that he is obligated, he is indebted to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both the wise and the foolish, to proclaim this good news. God has shared the gospel with him and commissioned him to tell others. And so now he's indebted. He has to pass it on. It's interesting, when we set, we set verse 14 alongside verse 5, we see Paul's motives for witness. If you recall back in verse 5, we saw that Paul tell, tells others about Jesus for the sake of his name, of Jesus' name, for Jesus' honor and glory. But now we also see that Paul tells others about Jesus for their sake. And in the first three chapters of Romans, as we're going to see in future weeks, we will see why people need to hear the good news about Jesus. But Paul has this passion in his heart. He feels indebted, a great urge to share with others the good news about Jesus. If we trust in Jesus, uh, we are not apostles uh, like Paul. We don't have a specific commission as an apostle. But every Christian is commissioned by Jesus to go and to make disciples of all nations. So, let me ask you this morning. Uh, if you are a Christian, how is your heart for sharing the good news of Jesus with others? Uh, do you have a sense of being indebted to those who don't yet know Christ? Do you have a passion to pass on this good news with which you have been entrusted? Is your heart for witness warmed by a passion for Jesus' sake and for people's sake? There is always a danger that we will grow quiet in our witness, isn't there? Because we are ashamed of the gospel. 
we do fear, as we were commenting on in the kids' talk, the ridicule and rejection of others to the, who we reach out. And the temptation is, isn't it, to be ashamed of the gospel. Now, that is nothing new. When you understand a little bit more about what crucifixion meant, you can see how the message which those first century Christians proclaimed was a bit of an embarrassment to them. To be crucified, of course, was the most undignified and scandalous way, a form of capital punishment. And yet the message which they were proclaiming to people was, you need to put your faith and you need to worship King Jesus, the Jew who was crucified on the cross. It would have been an absolute nonsense to many years. And of course, we know that the Christians were scorned because of this seemingly ridiculous message. They had every reason to be ashamed of the gospel in terms of the response they were getting from people. But Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Look at verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. Paul knows that God's ways are not our ways. Uh, Paul knows that the gospel's message is actually the power of God in verbal form. Uh, when this message is outlined, when it's explained to people, when they accept it, its power is released. It changes and it transforms lives. The gospel does what no other power on earth can do. It can save us, it can reconcile us to God, and it can guarantee us a place in God's kingdom. Uh, did you notice that this gospel power is both boundless and boundaried at the same time. Uh, Paul says it's available to everyone, it's boundless, but it's only experienced by those who believe. It is boundaried, and in that sense it is limited. And finally, what is it about the gospel that makes it so powerful to change and transform lives? Look at verse 17. For in the gospel... A righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Uh, you'll know, of course, that Martin Luther was a German monk uh, in the 16th century. Uh, he had been taught that God required him to live a righteous life in order to be saved. And so he had grown to hate God for first requiring of him what he could not do and then leaving him to fail. And then Luther read and finally grasped the meaning of this verse we've just read, Romans 1 verse 17. And in Martin Luther's own words, he recounts what happened next, and I'll read them to you. He says, I labored diligently and anxiously as to how to understand what Paul's words meant. The expression, the righteousness of God, blocked the way, because I took it to mean that righteousness, whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Although an impeccable monk, I knew I stood before God as a sinner, and therefore I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. 
But then I grasped that the righteousness of God is something completely different. It is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Thereupon I fell upon myself to be reborn and to have gone through as if gone through the open doors of paradise. I broke through, and as I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my dearest and most comforting words. When Luther understood what the righteousness of God was, the power of it broke through and transformed him and his life. And it didn't just stop there, of course, because that power then transformed Germany and Europe. Because Luther, of course, was instrumental in the start of the Protestant Reformation and the recovery of the gospel. When the penny dropped for Luther, everything changed. Luther realized the righteousness from God was not something he could ever earn through his own efforts. It was something he had to receive as a gift by faith. My prayer is that God will similarly bless us and break through into our lives. My prayer for this series is that the power of the gospel will be experienced afresh by me and by you as we unlock its power together, as we reflect on these deep and profound truths of God's wisdom and power through Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus. Thank you that it is powerful. Uh, thank you that it transforms us from being your enemies into being your friends. Thank you that it is by faith and not by works that nobody may boast. We pray that the power of the gospel will go deeper into our hearts in this series in Romans. Transform us, we pray. Help uh, where our hearts are only motivated by guilt and duty to share the good news of Jesus with others. We pray that you change that and warm our hearts such that we're also driven by that great motive of having a passion for the name's sake of Jesus and a passion for the sake of others. Amen.